Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick, in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. High risk. The World Health Organization warns about the combined threat of Omicron and Delta. The worst isn't over. China says the COVID outbreak is growing in a city of 13 million. And presidential call. Biden and Putin to speak for a second time in a month. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to a special 30-minute edition of First Move. Let's begin with a look at the global markets. U.S. traders getting in gear for the second-to-last trading session of 2021. Futures are pointing to a modestly higher open after yesterday's record highs for the Dow and the S&P 500, the 70th all-time high of the year for the S&P. The Dow currently on target for a seventh straight day of gains as well, amid traditionally thin holiday trading. Meantime, green arrows in Europe. UK stocks are sitting near the the 22-month highs they hit yesterday. Asia finished the day mixed amid fresh concerns that COVID will continue to weigh on economic growth. Samsung and Micron saying this week that lockdowns in northwest China are impacting output. More on China's COVID response in just a moment. But we begin with our drivers with the ongoing emergency in Europe. From London to Lisbon, we're seeing rates of COVID-19 infections rising to new highs. France reported 208,000 new cases over 24 hours. That's the most in one day for any European country since the pandemic began. The UK also had its worst ever day for new cases, more than 183,000. The head of the World Health Organization says things could get even worse. Delta and Omicron are twin threats that are driving up cases to record numbers. I'm highly concerned that Omicron, being more transmissible, circulating at the same time as Delta, is leading to a tsunami of cases. Melissa Bell is in Paris for us. Great to see you, Melissa. You know, with cases surging there and, and, and you know, many countries uh, in Europe, are, are, are restrictions getting even tighter? Uh, yes, they are, Alison. In fact, we've been hearing here in France, they've just reintroduced a, a mask mandate for outdoors. So going back a year, you had to wear a mask anytime you went on the streets here in France. That is now coming back into effect. So worried are authorities about exactly that, that dual threat that you just heard about there from the World Health Organization, Delta on one hand, which is still driving the majority of infections here in France and already causing a strain on the healthcare system, but Omicron, which is not far behind. We heard from the health minister yesterday who said, look, it is, uh, it is uh, the number of cases are doubling every two to three days of the Omicron variant. And what he explained was that although it is three times less dangerous than other variants that we've seen, it is six to seven times more contagious. And so what he was explaining to a parliamentary committee that was listening to him yesterday on this matter was that uh, even if uh, it tends to lead to less serious cases, uh, nonetheless, by the sheer weight of the amount of people being infected, you mentioned that 208,000 barrier being broken yesterday, that was itself uh, a record breaker after the record breaker of the day before and the one before that on Christmas Day. That's how fast this is moving here in France. Uh, The problem is that 
that just under that sheer weight of new cases, you are going to see substantial strain on the healthcare system. Already operations are being canceled. Other patients being turned away here in France. Over in Germany, only a sixth of ICU beds currently available. And that tells you how little room for maneuver they have going forward with this fear that the sheer caseload is going to lead, sadly, uh, to more people ending up in hospital, particularly, of course, Alison, we keep saying this, those who've been unvaccinated. Yeah, these COVID numbers are records we don't want to see broken. Melissa Bell, thanks very much. Happy New Year if I don't see you. In the Chinese city of Xi'an, a tight lockdown and repeated rounds of mass testing have not yet brought down the COVID case count. New infections remain steady at around 150 a day. The shutdown is China's largest since the early days of the pandemic and is now hitting the world's biggest chip makers. Stephen Zhang reports. Authorities in Xi'an are warning the worst is not over just yet for their metropolis of 13 million residents, with the city now recording well over a thousand new locally transmitted cases in the past three weeks. Officials are now also warning about the risk of uh, hidden transmissions and breakthrough infections, justifying the need for uh, uh, harsh lockdown measures as well as repeated citywide testing. But these uh, sweeping containment measures are now starting to hamper the operations of two of the world's biggest chip makers, potentially uh, worsening an ongoing crisis of a global chip shortage. Both uh, uh, Samsung of South Korea and Micron of the U.S. have now acknowledged they had to adjust their operations in Xi a major industrial hub where both companies have invested heavily in manufacturing facilities. Now, both companies have said they would leverage their global manufacturing networks to uh, minimize disruptions. And meanwhile, in southern China, disturbing videos have emerged from a border town where four people in full hazmat suits with uh, placards showing their photos hanging around their necks being paraded through the streets for allegedly helping others illegally crossing the borders into China from neighboring Vietnam. That's considered a heinous offense, apparently, by local police because of China's continued border closure and increasingly tightened COVID rules. There have been some recent local outbreaks linked to illegal immigrants, and officials there have defended their public shaming tactics, saying it's needed to act as a deterrent. But critics say this has once again exposed the dark and repressive side of China's zero COVID policy, with many local officials having little regard for human rights or dignity in the name of COVID prevention. Stephen Jiang, CNN, Beijing. For a second day in a row, India is seeing a sharp increase in new COVID cases. It reported more than 13,000 new infections today, a more than 40% jump over the day before. But Indian political parties are in a full campaign mode, holding large rallies ahead of legislative elections in five states early next year. As Ivan Watson reports, there's a concern those rallies could make the COVID situation worse. India's Prime Minister on the campaign trail, addressing packed crowds in Uttar Pradesh, a key political battleground. With elections due to start here early next year, Narendra Modi's made seven trips to India's most populous state in December alone. At these rallies, most, including the nation's leader, are not wearing masks. And little mention from Modi's ruling BJP of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and it seems unlikely that uh, the BJP would want to take the risk to conduct uh, the election in the aftermath of uh, another, another wave. On the other hand, uh, they are uh, reckless enough to uh, push for holding an election during a COVID wave. 
but there are fears of a repeat of recent tragic history. This was the scene in New Delhi in the spring of 2021. Crematoriums working overtime, death tolls from COVID skyrocketing, hospital beds and oxygen in short supply. With the healthcare system overwhelmed, critics accused Modi of putting politics before public health. After encouraging election rallies and large religious gatherings, which would later be declared super spreader events by some experts. Fast forward to today. Omicron is of concern. Please don't panic, but be careful and stay alert. Use masks as much as possible. Some Indian states have imposed measures to curb the spread of the new Omicron variant. But despite urging caution, the national government has yet to announce any restrictions on large public gatherings. As cases rise, only 41% of India's population is fully vaccinated against COVID-19. As the nation's political parties come out to campaign, public health officials are sounding the alarm. If India observes the same pattern as UK, and if we compare the population of both countries, 80,000 daily cases in UK would mean around 1.4 million daily COVID cases in India. They worry the election cycle could fuel a fresh wave of new infections. People might not get tested if the symptoms of this variant aren't visible. So there are more chances of the election rallies becoming super spreader events. But there is no doubt that we should postpone these rallies for at least two months. Prevention is the best cure for India. In the spring of 2021, India's healthcare system buckled under the pressure of its second coronavirus wave, which peaked at some 400,000 recorded daily cases. Since then, the government has increased the number of ICU beds and bolstered oxygen supplies. But it's still an open question how hospitals will cope if there's a new wave of Omicron infections. For now, Prime Minister Modi's message is clear. When it comes to casting ballots, the show must go on. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. CNN has reached out to the ruling BJP and the Election Commission of India regarding the decision to allow large political events to continue and has not received a response. India's political parties have expressed that elections should take place as scheduled with more polling booths and more distancing while abiding by current COVID protocols states have in place. The Election Commission said today that state health officials have told it enough people have been vaccinated and more are vaccinated each day. It says it will issue guidelines on rallies once formal election dates are announced. In the coming hours, U.S. President Biden and Russian President Putin will hold an urgent phone call at the request of Mr. Putin. The Kremlin wants to discuss, quote, complicated issues amid tensions over Ukraine. Nick Robertson joins me now from Moscow. So, Nick, do we really know why Mr. Putin is suddenly and seemingly urgently requesting this phone meeting just weeks after speaking with President Biden and just ahead of diplomatic talks already scheduled for January 10th? Yeah, the Russian tone in all of this has been a re- to create a real sense of urgency, uh, both for talks with, with, with the United States, with NATO, with the OSCE in, in Europe. So this is really in keeping with that. 
President Biden, President Putin spoke a couple of weeks ago, and it was agreed then that they'd work at a lower diplomatic level and Russia would put forward, uh, you know, its set of issues, which it did a, a week, 10 days or so after that phone call. So what we're hearing from the Kremlin is, you know, now they've put forward that set of proposals, which is NATO not to expand uh, into, into Ukraine, not to take Ukraine as a member, uh, and to pull back troops close to the border, pull back NATO for, uh, troops who, uh, you know, are close to the sort of eastern Europe's eastern border, if you will, um, that now Russia has put that on the table. Um, they want to have this sort of pre-talks phone call between President Putin and President Biden because of what they describe as this being, you know, as you said, complicated issues. Extremely complicated is the language they're using. What we are understanding, though, is that the Kremlin is still saying that it believes that it can work all of this out diplomatically, that, that, that from their perspective, this doesn't mean uh, that they, they plan to pursue a recourse to, to military action that the diplomatic track is working. We're getting more details about that diplomatic track as well. Wendy Sherman, uh, Deputy Secretary of State on the, on the U.S. side, uh, and uh, Sergei Rybakov, the uh, Deputy Foreign Minister here, will lead those talks uh, that will be in Geneva on the 10th of January. But yes, uh, Russia has really been pushing hard. And this extra phone call, if you will, with President Biden seems to be in that, in that vein. Keep the pressure on keep the narrative up from the Russian perspective. Okay, Nick Robertson, live for us in Moscow. That call happening in a little over six hours from now. I know you'll be on it. Thanks very much. Coming up, a step towards justice. Survivors speak out after Ghislaine Maxwell is found guilty of recruiting young girls for abuse. Reaction to a case that's been followed around the world. These are stories making headlines around the world. Survivors of abuse by Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein say they're relieved and grateful after Maxwell was found guilty Wednesday. The former socialite was convicted on five out of six charges for her involvement in Epstein's sexual assault of teenage girls. One of the accusers says she sobbed with joy when the verdict came through. CNN's Sonia Mogi is live for us in New York. Sonia, you have been following this trial since the beginning. Now that we have the verdicts, what's the likelihood that Ghislaine Maxwell will try to actually cut a deal with prosecutors to try to get a lesser prison sentence um, in, I would say, you know, if she goes ahead and maybe gives more information? You know, Maxwell has such a savvy, uh, aggressive legal team. We've seen this team in action for years when she's dealt with civil lawsuits um, and also after her arrest last year. So, We'll see what they end up doing, but it is guaranteed to be an aggressive, uh, an aggressive move to try to get her sentence as low as possible. But she could face up to 65 years on one of these counts alone, the sex trafficking of a minor count. She could face up to 40 years just for that count. So these are very serious charges. She just turned 60 years old on Christmas Day this past weekend. Um, she could be facing potentially the rest of her life in prison. So um her team has said, her family has said through spokespeople that they are already working on an appeal. Um, and so we'll see, you know, sort of what next moves they make. But for victims and survivors of this abuse, not only by Maxwell, but also by Epstein, they've started speaking out. Um, we've heard from one of those women who did not testify in the trial, but who's spoken publicly um, many times before, uh, Virginia Roberts Jufre. We were told constantly, you know, these people will never go to jail. They, they're too powerful. They're too rich. And 
and we live in a new day. And it just goes to show that, you know, this is not the end. This is just the beginning. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. Very interesting words coming from one of these accusers who has literally waited years for this moment. Um, There are still many other civil cases that are in the works, so it will be very interesting to see where this case goes. Ghislaine Maxwell herself still has two more counts of perjury in a separate case uh, that still have to be dealt with. Allison. Okay, Sanyamogi, thanks for your great reporting. In other news, honoring a nation's moral conscience, South Africans are visiting the casket of national hero Archbishop Desmond Tutu in Cape Town. The anti-apartheid activist is lying in state ahead of his funeral on New Year's Day. A memorial service was held in Johannesburg earlier. Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, is defending the arrests of seven people connected with independent media outlet Stand News this week. Lam said the arrests had nothing to do with the individual's work as journalists, saying police were simply enforcing the law. Stand News has said it will shut down immediately, raising new fears about press freedom in Hong Kong. And you're watching First Move. More to come after this break. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. The opening bell is about to ring on Wall Street for the second to last time this year. And it's looking like a modestly higher open for U.S. stocks with the S&P and the Dow on track for fresh records. The Nasdaq, though, is still down some 3 percent from its all-time highs. Investors are bracing for what could be a volatile year ahead amid ongoing uncertainties over COVID, Fed rate policy, inflation, and the upcoming U.S. midterm elections. A lot to talk about with Mark Sandy now. He joins me live. He is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Great to see you. Thanks, Allison. Let's start off with uh, the pandemic, uh, Omicron specifically, and kind of this curveball that's been thrown at the economy. It's been disrupting the economy, you know, from travel to restaurants and more. How do you see economic growth being impacted, at least at the beginning of 2022, And I'm curious to hear about your projections for GDP. Well, it's going to do damage. It already has started to do that. You could see that with the cancellation of air flights. Uh, Restaurant bookings are down. Credit card spending on travel is off. Uh, You know, the National Hockey League is suspended play. So there's a lot of anecdotes. It's too early to see it in the government data, but I think we'll see that as we move into early next year. And I think the Delta wave of the pandemic, which hit back in the fall, is a pretty good case study, Allison, did do uh, some damage to, to economic growth. But the good news is as Delta started to wind down, the economy started to rev back up, and I expect that to happen here with uh, Omicron. And uh, as we make our way into the spring, we should uh, see much stronger growth. So for in terms of GDP, uh, you know, Q, the first quarter of this year is going to be soft. You know, I think we'll grow, but, you know, very, very slowly. But for the year, I think it should be a, a good year, about 4% growth for GDP. And that's enough to generate enough jobs to bring unemployment down even further as the year progresses. Do you think with this damage that Omicron can do to consumer spending that you're talking about and just overall economic growth or maybe even a downturn in the stock market, do you think any of those things could um, push the Fed to maybe you know, step back from its plan to raise interest rates, which is expected to happen in the first part of 2022? Yeah, I think so. I think the Fed has shown a willingness to be, you know, I think the word is flexible, uh, that, you know, conditions are changing pretty quickly here with regard to the 
pandemic. And of course, uh, what's going on in Washington is also, you know, uh, going up and down and all around and complicating things. And so the Fed needs to be adroit, uh, agile, uh, and be able to change policy. So yeah, I think if Omicron does more damage, if Build Back Better doesn't get passed into law, uh, you know, relatively soon, and that will be a hit to growth, uh, then yeah, the Fed may delay when it actually begins to start raising interest rates, which right now feels like it's going to be sometime May or June of 2022, but they could delay it. The concern, though, is that that wouldn't clamp down on inflation. First of all, do you think it's necessary that the Fed you know, obviously will be flexible? Do you think that if the economy takes a hit from the pandemic, from Omicron, that it should wait to raise interest rates? But then the concern is, what about inflation? Yeah, good point. It's a balance. It's a trade-off. I mean, it's a judgment call. I mean, if you think that uh, the, the increase in inflation is going to be temporary because, you know, it's uh, supply chain disruptions related to the Omicron wave or labor market issues because people can't are, are sick, can't go to work, and, you know, that's causing prices to rise. You know, and if you think that's in temporary, if that's not going to last, not going to affect inflation expectations, then, yeah, the Fed should uh, be more circumspect in raising rates, be slower. However, uh, you know, if the inflation looks like it's going to be more persistent, it's starting to affect people's thinking about future inflation, inflation expectations, that, that means it's going to be more persistent than, than no. They probably will continue down the path they're on now and, can, and tighten the interest rates sooner rather than later. So we're going to have to see how this all plays out. What's the biggest wild card you see for the economy in 2022? Well, top of the list, obviously, is the pandemic. I mean, this thing is, you know, incredibly difficult to predict. And I think the one thing we can predict is that there will be future waves of the pandemic after Omicron. So that's number one. Number two is fiscal policy, what's going on in Washington, the Build Back Better agenda. You know, it won't be a game changer for the economy if if that doesn't get into law, but it will have an impact, you know, particularly in 2022. The child tax credit is already going to expire in January. So that's going to do some, some, some damage. And the third thing I'll just throw into the mix is, you know, asset prices, when I say asset prices, I mean stock prices, uh, housing values, uh, crypto prices, they've gone skyward uh, and uh, valuations are very, very high. Speculation is starting to creep into some markets. And I think those markets are vulnerable as the Fed does begin to raise interest rates. And that is a risk, I think, for 2022. Very quickly, yes or no, do you think if bits of the Build Back Better plan are passed, like the child tax credit, that that will help the economy? Yeah, I, I do indeed. Uh, I think uh, that's critical for, for growth in 22 and, and more importantly, for longer term economic growth. OK. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Uh, Happy New Year as well. Take care now. And finally, on First Move, NASA has ambitious plans for the new year, including a closer look at the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. The Psyche spacecraft is slated to launch in August. It'll check out the Psyche asteroid, which is thought to be rich in iron and nickel and has a theoretical value of, get this, $10,000 quadrillion. That's a lot of zeros. It's thought to be the space rock could be a leftover from the early days of our solar system and could help explain how our corner of the Milky Way has, was created. It'll take the spacecraft four years to reach the asteroid. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Happy New Year. And the best of Quest is next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.